Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, providing enterprise class management solutions for physical, virtual, or cloud-based Windows desktops. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. ZDNet has reported on a major vulnerability in VMware vSphere client, with it getting a 9.8 out of 10 on the severity scale. They report that a Shodan search shows more than 6,700 servers exposed online that contain the client plugin. This is very serious as it's a pre-auth vulnerability and if infiltrated, an attacker could take full control of a network. Patches were released on February 23rd. I'd imagine it's pretty common for admins to put the plugin on servers for convenience and they just forget it's even there. Due to the large number of companies that run vCenter's software on their networks, Positive Technologies initially planned to keep details about the bug secret until system admins had enough time to test and apply patches. However, the proof of concept code posted by a Chinese researcher effectively denied companies any grace period to apply the patch and also started a free-for-all mass scan for vulnerable vCenter systems left connected online, with hackers hurrying to compromise systems before rival gangs. The example exploit is a single line too, so that's pretty worrying. It seems very simple and accessible for those to execute with. So this is one you're going to want to patch quickly. IGEL or EGEL held their Disrupt Unite event this week, with the most obvious highlight being the announcement of IGEL integration with Amazon Workspaces. Users of the new IGEL and Amazon Workspaces integration are said they will benefit from the highly secure IGEL OS, which is purpose-built for solutions such as Amazon Workspaces. The hardware agnostic OS is able to convert any 32-bit R64 bit device into an Amazon Workspace powered cloud endpoint. It goes on to suggest that the Linux-based operating system is extremely resistant to viruses and other malware and features integrated support for two-factor authentication and trusted execution for Amazon Workspaces. Now importantly it says extremely resistant, does not say completely resistant, so still keep your head on a swivel. IGLOS with Amazon Workspaces integration will be available by March 1st to any new or existing customers. ZDNet had a really great article this week that included an infographic showing the actions and intentions of various cyber crime gangs out there right now. But most interestingly of all, to me at least, is a chart that shows connections between the various groups. 
So if you're listening to this on the audio-only version of the podcast, you can catch the chart that I'm talking about on the YouTube edition. Or you can go to 5bytespodcast.com and click on the reference links to find a link to the ZDNet article I'm talking about. In yet another update regarding the SolarWinds hack, Brad Smith of Microsoft gave testimony in the US this week, and in doing so revealed that without FireEye being open about what they found with their own internal investigation, Microsoft would be none the wiser about their own breach. This is one cool thread that has been popping up with some breaches over the last couple of years. Companies work together and share information, which seems needed considering the cyber gangs are working together too. Teamwork makes the dream work. In keeping with that ethos, Microsoft have also made tools that they used for investigating their own breach available on GitHub. It's a set of code QL queries that you can take and run in your own organization. And I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 165 on 5bytespodcast.com. You just have to click on reference links. And if you'd like to check out the YouTube edition of the show, there's a YouTube column on the episode guide. So just click on the YouTube link for episode 165. In less joyful SolarWinds news, multiple news outlets, including CNN, reported that some of the SolarWinds are Orion CEO, which I think it's SolarWinds CEO, are blaming the SolarWinds 123 password leak on a mistake made by an intern. The researcher who discovered the password stated the issue was discovered in November 2019. The password had been accessible online since at least June 2018, though. To me, it seems really silly to go before a hearing and blame an intern. Just my opinion, but it's kind of weak management. The buck should stop at the top. During the same hearing, they did confirm that guest passwords are a possible avenue for the attackers to have got in, but they are still investigating. There is no known avenue into their network or into their development chain yet. And if you've been listening to the podcast over the last couple of months, to me, that seemed like a pretty obvious one because the timing of when the code was injected in was just before the security researcher found the password exposed on a GitHub repository. And going by this testimony, it sounds like it had been available for some time before that too. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. BleepingComputer.com reported on a story this week about T-Mobile in the U.S. disclosing a data breach with attackers using SIM swapping techniques on an unknown number of customers' phone numbers. The increasing use of SIM swapping is furthering the idea that SMS-based multi-factor authentication is not quite as secure as some may think. It is not clear if they gained access to an employee's account or did it through the compromised user's accounts. T-Mobile quickly identified and terminated the unauthorized activity. However, they are recommending that you change your customer account PIN, according to a statement by T-Mobile. So if you're a T-Mobile customer, change your PIN. BBComputer.com also reported this week that a previously disclosed vulnerability, CVE-2021-1732, which allows attackers to elevate their privileges to the admin level by triggering a use-after-free condition in the win32k.sys core kernel component, has been exploited since at least summer 2020. 
The report also suggests it can be exploited with basic user privileges in low complexity attacks that don't require any user interaction. So for the love of God, patch, this one's pretty serious too. The words low complexity and no user interaction should put a shiver up the spine of anyone who works in InfoSec. This week, Forbes reported that Underwriters Laboratories got breached last weekend. They took quick action and shut down the systems that were breached. At the time of this recording, it is unclear what the attackers may have gained, if anything, and the company have instructed their workforce to not respond or engage with the hackers. They intend to just restore from backups. As has been stated on this podcast over and over again with these kinds of stories, this is the recommended way of dealing with ransomware attacks. People are advised not to pay the ransom. It just encourages them to attack again. And history has shown that while they might promise not to release your data and they'll delete your data, they don't always follow through with what they're telling you they will do. So it's best just not to pay the ransom because you're not going to get what maybe you think you're paying for. Gem maker Bombardier have been hit by ransomware with the Klopp ransomware gang sending them a ransom note. Attackers stole the personal and confidential data of employees, customers, and suppliers. Forensics analysis revealed that personal and other confidential information relating to employees, customers, and suppliers was compromised. Approximately 130 employees located in Costa Rica were impacted. The company has been proactively contacting customers and other external stakeholders whose data was potentially compromised, said a cybersecurity breach advisory released by the organization. The company stresses that the Excelion FTA servers that they had are isolated from the rest of the network and that the attackers did not gain access to any other systems. So it sounds like at least the problem was contained and not completely widespread throughout the organization system. So. I guess that's one small consolation. So a few quick hit stories now, but ZDNet reports that Microsoft answered a user voice submission stating that they will be adding a join meeting button in Outlook when the Teams meeting is added to your diary. So I guess that's gonna be similar to if you're viewing your calendar within Teams, any Teams meeting has that join button right within the calendar. So I guess they're going to add a similar join feature into the Outlook calendar too, which is going to be handy. The latest WVD client insider preview has been released and it's said to improve video call quality and other commonly reported issues. So if you're someone who's using WVD and maybe you're not getting the most crisp experience with your video calls, you might want to test out and try this insider preview and Christian Brinkhoff has asked if you have any feedback to please share that too so they can improve it before I guess it goes to a full release. Tomsguide.com have posted a look at Safari on macOS versus Chrome with the results showing Chrome uses about 10 times more memory than Safari. I will say that in my opinion at least there isn't a huge amount of information in the article and this could be a big case of, you know, it depends. But to me, it is also very believable just from my own experience. Uh, particularly for some sites, when I'm using Chrome on Mac OS, memory consumption just goes through the roof, it goes crazy. Whereas I can 
open a tab in Safari with the same site and it's nowhere near as taxing. This could be a case that developers are using some features in Chrome to gather more information that's not available in Safari. I'm not that smart and I'm not a developer of web apps, so I don't fully know, but it's probably, it depends. It's probably not all sites and all browsing is going to use up to 10 times more, but some will, which is off-putting enough. It might be a good argument to use Safari if you use Mac OS versus Chrome. Also relevant, TechRadar.com shared an exchange with the Google engineer indicating that they have been testing some changes which could reduce memory usage overall. So I guess we'll have to keep an eye out for that, but I think reports of something like that coming have been rumored for some time, so maybe don't hold our breaths for that. But you may recall on the podcast I previously covered that uh, Microsoft's team, since they're using Chromium for the new Edge, had passed along some recommendations and tweaks that they made to Edge to improve the memory consumption. So maybe some of that will get folded into the actual base Chromium too. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Thanks to Steve Noel for sharing a link to a Citrix article about how to detect your Netscaler appliances have been used as part of a denial of service attack and what to do. I've covered this story before and actually this article too, but Steve's tweet has some really useful advice in a handy screenshot. He states that if your Citrix ADC has a large difference in throughput, specifically the out and high memory usage, say 80 to 90%, then be sure to apply the denial of service fixes by upgrading the version and applying the hello verify request DTLS setting. And if you're listening to the audio only version of the podcast again, on the YouTube edition, I'm sharing the screenshot that Steve shared. Um, but of course, you can also view his tweet, which I'll include a link to with this episode. So I'm probably going to include this next one in next week's episode and maybe the week after too. I'm not too sure. Uh, but I would just ask that if you work in end user computing, please fill in the VDI like a pro state of the union survey that was published a few weeks ago. I talked about it on a previous episode of the podcast as well, but I find the data really, really useful and really interesting. I cite it in some of my presentation sessions as well. And it's going to be very handy for tracking trends within end user computing. Like for me, and it's probably not all that interesting to everyone out there, but I like to see what application virtualization or application packaging solution, maybe layering is being used. And if there's an uptick one way or another year on year. And I think this year is going to be particularly prudent because so many people had to react to the work from home and more applications were moved into things like Citrix and VMware Horizon than probably in any year previously. So it'll be interesting to see how everyone handled that and what the trends are. So please fill in that survey and I'll include a link with this episode for that too. And now a weekly webinar. So I said a weekly webinar, but really it's two, and one of them's not really a webinar per se, so that's why I'm including two. But first up, Microsoft Ignite will be held from March 2nd through March 4th. Obviously, this is a large virtual conference. Usually it's an in-person conference, so they're going to be all-day events. Um, the good news of it being virtual is the fact that it's actually going to be free to attend, so... If, like me, you've never been able to attend in person because your employer wouldn't pay for it, this is 
an opportunity for you to be able to attend the sessions virtually. And to include an actual webinar, ControlUp will be showing off their new Solve product and what is being called ControlUp Ultimate on March 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern. And you can register to attend both right now. And also just an FYI, I actually blogged about Solve complete with some videos that I've created. So if you'd like to get a sneak peek before the webinar, I'll share a link to the blog post and my videos that I created with this episode again, which is episode 165, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. First up, Michael Mardell shared a YouTube video that's really handy on setting up temporary access pass for securing your corporate registration. Uh, he warns that attackers are now adding their own MFA credentials directly into Azure AD. So you're going to want to be able to protect yourself with like conditional access and extra layers of security. And this video will teach you about temporary access pass, which can help you combat that. SmartFrame had a pretty decent article on the topic of home Wi-Fi suitability for business use. It goes more into the security angle things rather than like performance. I know people who go to work from home are constantly complaining of their connection dropping, particularly when this whole thing originally started and everyone was just sucking up all the bandwidth. But this is kind of more around the security angle, which is very relevant to enterprise IT. Citrix posted a blog on their tips around Citrix ADC Cypher security and demystifying that. Personally, I'm not all that up on ciphers and the security of different ciphers and different protocols. So this is a really handy one for me and just keeping myself informed and you might find it interesting too. I posted a blog post. I work together with Numescent who make the excellent cloud paging product. And my blog post is specifically around my time working in finance and dealing with financial applications. I created the blog post and Numesson liked it enough to publish it on their own site. So thanks for that. But even if you're not working in finance, it's probably going to apply to you as well because it talks about certain apps that like, for example, are not compatible working in a multi-session operating system. Uh, it talks about applications that maybe open files with create rather than simply read when it could function with read talks about applications with drivers and these different challenges that you face that could be blockers when trying to do like dynamic delivery using application layering, traditional application virtualization and containers. So if you're interested in the application delivery space, this is definitely one you'll want to check out for yourself. Thanks to Thorsten once more for sharing this one from Chris Calmer. Did you know when in GitHub, you can browse code in a VS code mode. To do so, you can go to any repository you're interested in on GitHub and replace GitHub with GitHub 1S. That's the number one, not O-N-E, within the browser address bar. And it will open it up within that familiar VS code mode. I mean, personally, I think I saw Guy Leach. I think it was Guy who was tweeting about before where he's kind of more comfortable using the PowerShell ice. And that's kind of me too. Just, I do 
use VS Code, particularly for like JSON files and for some different file types that I might need to work with. But I find myself going back to the actual native original PowerShell ICE when working with PowerShell. Maybe I need to just kind of commit to using VS Code more. It's, it seems like it's going to become more of a standard. There was a really interesting blog post by Adam Silver, who is an interaction designer, and he's giving guidance on placement of labels in web forms. So I'm hoping to do more scripting and development work in my new role. So this is timely for me, and you might enjoy it too. And actually speaking of which, I never discussed my new role because I don't talk about myself that much on the podcast. Um, I feel like I should probably put out a blog post or something like that for anyone who's interested. Or not. <laughs> I am pretty lazy and I don't have that much time for blogging these days. So uh, just know I'm in a new role, I guess. I'm independent. I've got my own organization or my own company called Roy Mon Solutions. You may see me doing some blogging from time to time for different vendors, but I am also working a lot of my time still in the technical space. I'm not just doing content creation and blogging, but that is now part of my remit. So I'm pretty excited about it. Tim Mangan shared his findings that visual C++ components do not appear to work when included in an MSIX package or even when the components are outside the package. It spurred a pretty lively discussion on Twitter with some suggestions for maybe how to get around this. So while it might not be a complete impediment to getting these applications to work, you might be able to apply some manual workarounds into your packages. It is pretty annoying because I think maybe Tim is taking the same mindset that I am, which is I, I actually posted a blog and I shared it on the podcast a few weeks ago where I was talking about going through my app v5.1 packages and converting to them to MSIX. And yes, I could have got a higher success rate by using, for example, Tim's great PSF tooling. But to me, I was trying to see what's the amount of effort in moving from AppV or moving from a different solution like cloud paging over to MSIX. And is MSIX worth the time investment right now? And my conclusion was that it's not because there's too much manual remediation work that's going to be required for me to convert my packages. And right now they work fine in AppV and it's a very simple conversion from AppV to cloud paging versus it's not very simple from AppV to MSIX. So I find this really interesting that there are these workarounds, but again, you know, it worked fine with AppV, whether you put it locally or whether you use their dynamic Visual C++ runtime delivery option within the AppV sequencer, whereas now it's not going to work the same way in MSIX, at least not yet. So it's something more to consider. And on that MSIX topic, Tim also shared a script that you can use to convert your AppV apps to MSIX, which is something that I did recently. And because he's awesome, he also has a script for converting MSIX to VHD or SIM, C-I-M, for AppAttach. Fresh-IT, or Fresh-IT, I guess, fresh-it.info, have a useful blog post on optimizing your Citrix session performance via scale, font size, and font smoothing. It's an old article now, but it's still interesting and relevant, I feel. James Rankin is back, this time with an article on OneDrive on Citrix virtual apps and desktop. This is another really comprehensive blog post that James is now famous for. 
It provides an awful lot of information and it's probably the only resource you're going to need on this topic. So maybe sit down with a tea or coffee, read through it, and you'll come away much more enlightened and know how to handle this in your environment. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening.